Amen. Well, if you'd open your Bibles to Judges chapter 6, we're going to be going through uh, quite a few verses here. I'm not going to read them all up front. I'm going to read it in three different chunks as we go through. I want to remind all of us, as I was reminded this week at our road group on Friday, which is just getting better and better the more regular we meet, um, and that is that um, when we gather to worship, I think it's very important to think about something, and that is that uh, for the most part, and that being 90% of your time here, you're here actually to give. What I mean by that, we gather as the people of God in the presence of the Spirit to worship God. That's why we're here. We are here to give God, ascribe God glory, majesty with our voices, with our tithes and offerings, with our service, with our fellowship. There's Most of the things we do here, we're coming actually to give to somebody. And yet, I think most of the time when we evaluate our experience at church... We typically value on what we got, or what we received. Now, you do receive some things. You receive God's Word. I do believe you receive communion, uh, and you receive, hopefully, fellowship and love from one another. Uh, but for the most part, our intention here is to gather to give God something. Um, so I think that's hugely important to be reminded of as we go, and maybe, you know, for whatever, the sermon's off. And you go, man, you know, that was an okay experience. Or the music might have not been your taste. Be very careful of your heart in that situation, uh, because I think the problem is a misunderstanding of why you're gathering at all, uh, if that's the perception, okay? Um, I see a lot of people fanning. Let me turn the uh, air conditioning on. It's like, oh my gosh, it's so freaking hot in here. So um, let me just do this real quick. Look at that. Coldness instantly. Now, uh, Judges chapter 6, here we go. Uh, we're going to begin in verse 11. Uh, we read two weeks ago, just by way of reminder, how Israel had sinned and gave God, um, I'm sorry, God gave his people over to a nomadic mob uh, called the Moabites, um, I'm sorry, the Midianites, and over the course of seven years, the Midianites would routinely swarm in like locusts during a harvest time and would pretty much wipe out everything they had. The people would flee to the hills, and they would hang out in caves as their livestock and their fields were all devoured. And they were just crushed in every way, emotionally, physically, materially, everything was gone. And so now, these people are hungry, and they're poor, and they're tired, and they're living like cavemen for the most part. They cry out to God, and God, in His grace, sends a prophet to scold them, to tell them, um, basically, what the real problem is, which is two things. One, you've forgotten the grace of God. And two, you have stopped listening to His voice. That's the big problem. Well, meanwhile, as this prophet is declaring all these things about God and what they have done in terms of their failure to respond to Him rightly, uh, God is graciously preparing a deliverer named Gideon. And Gideon is a blue-collar son of an apostate whose name means hacker of trees. Uh, some say this name means mighty, but really the, the original uh, kind of language is a thrasher of trees or hacker of trees. Um, up to this point, every uh, time God has delivered somebody, he's kind of just declared it. They raised up a deliverer, sent him. Raised up a deliverer and sent him. And different men and women have been raised to save Israel. But with Gideon, we get a very clear picture of what it looks like for God to call somebody 
and to raise them up and to send him. And we have this conversation between God and the man that he has chosen, this ordinary man, to send on, on mission. And even though God speaks directly to him, he is very reluctant. Okay, We always think, like, well, if God showed up and talked to me, I would do exactly what he says. Well, Gideon doesn't really demonstrate that. He's very reluctant um, to follow him. And God, his commands are not confusing. Like, it's not like, what, do you, what did you mean by that? Uh, very clear. Um, but instead of listening to God's voice and doing what he says, which is evidence of listening, like you can hear a lot, and if you actually don't do what you hear, then you're not listening. Instead of listening to his voice, he spends most of his time talking over God, debating him, and complaining. Now, Gideon uh, talks about all the ways God has let him down. He talks about why God has chosen the wrong guy to do this, and basically why God's plan won't work. Um, that really is evident, ultimately, of Gideon doing a lot of really good listening to himself. That's what he's doing. And his self-talk, right, we all have like these voices inside of us, and we wrongly, I think, trust them a lot of the time. His self-talk is full of cynicism, his self-talk is full of doubt, and his self-talk is full of a lot of fear. So much, though, that he is paralyzed and does nothing when God says, you're supposed to do this. He is unwilling and unable to move when God says, go. So we're going to begin in verse 11, and we'll see what this exchange looks like, and see if it maybe sounds a little bit like us, which I think it actually does. In verse 11 of chapter 6, says this, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not, do not I send you. And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. So here's the picture we have. Gideon is hiding in a wine press. The wine press is built into the ground, so it's a little bit lower. And he is going through, literally, the daily grind of beating out wheat. And usually this would be done on a threshing floor out in the open where you would beat the wheat and the shaft would kind of blow away and you'd be able to separate it. So he is trying to hide his food from the Midianites who keep coming and taking it. So we'll do it in the wine press, and they won't see it happening and won't find their food. And the angel of the Lord shows up. Many who would consider and conclude, which I would as well, that this is actually the pre-incarnate Christ. So I'll say Jesus. I don't, well, I'll write uh, this week on why I believe that, but it's pretty clear as you study the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament 
not an angel, but the angel of the Lord. But the first thing he says to this blue-collar farmer hiding in a wine press is, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And it's interesting how God often addresses us from where we'll be and not where we are. And this is what he does with Gideon. And Gideon, pretty unimpressed, mighty man of valor, right? Very despondent, doesn't really seem to even um, recognize that this is some kind of heavenly messenger. At least that's not his reaction. Typically, when angels showed up, you know, in a shaft of light or something glowing, guys fell on their faces. This is not happening. So I really think at first, he probably just thinks he's a nosy neighbor or some guy. And so his, he responds, I think, very naturally, right? It's amazing, not that you ever do this, but like when um, the pastor shows up, how quickly people talk differently. Like if someone's there you respect, they're like, oh, you know, you'll, you'll not really say what you think. So I think Gideon's really just going to unload here. Really, he doesn't know who this guy is. Maybe he's not even looking up. And he starts talking. And I think reveals the true nature of heart, which is filled with skepticism and despair about his present situation and the situation of his people. He is way beyond encouragement. And he responds with, you know, hey, mighty man of valor. He's like, really? The Lord is with us? Then why has all this happened to us? He's referring to the seven years of devastation that have happened under the Midianite mob. Because the only world that Gideon can seem to see is this horizontal world in front of him. And a guy shows up and says, the Lord is with you, man. He's blessing you. He's in your presence. He's like, really? Where? Sound familiar? From his perspective, he is in a wine press, beating out wheat so he can feed his family so they don't become destitute. Life stinks in his perspective. And he asks, where has God been for the last seven years? Where is this powerful God I've heard all these stories about from my dad, who's now an apostate and is an idol worshiper, Where is the God who took us out of Egypt? If God is with us, why do I feel so abandoned? Again, sound familiar? I don't look down on Gideon because I think I have sounded like Gideon. I really do. He asks some honest, I think real, raw questions, though they are a bit misguided and very self-centered. But they're honest. And it seems like his pity party has blinded him to the truth of the real problem, the real reason why God has seemed so passively silent when, in fact, he hasn't been. It's clear Gideon hasn't heard about Barak and Deborah, hasn't heard about Othniel, maybe hasn't heard about these things, or maybe they're many years ago, but he brings up Egypt as the only one that he remembers. He forgets or maybe is refusing to see that God gave his people away only after they stopped listening to him. Only after they had already ran after other gods. I like how Isaiah the prophet says it. 
Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. The real problem is not Midian. It is sin. It is the sin of Gideon, it is the sin of his family, his clan of Israel, who have refused to listen to God. And I think one of the most interesting aspects of this conversation is the angel Lord doesn't answer any of his questions. He doesn't go, oh, whoa, 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 Gideon. Maybe you have not heard of Shamgar. Okay? Maybe you've not heard of Othniel. Those were my boys. Maybe you've not heard of Deborah and Brock. Where have you been? He doesn't even he doesn't doesn't need to doesn't even make an effort to defend himself. He quiets Gideon's whining by simply speaking truth again, and I think very patiently, like a whiny kid. You right? I know none of you have whiny kids, but when your kid is like, "Well, you didn't do this," and you and you, am I going to rationalize with this kid now? Am I going to like, no? Let me tell you why you're so wrong and why I'm so right, as opposed to just. Let me speak truth. And I'm going to speak truth again. And I'm going to tell you again what you need to do. And he says to him, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? Where have you been? What are you doing? Go. See, God always seems to see what we have and what is possible why I think often we only see what we don't have and what is surely impossible. He speaks from a perspective that I don't think we can even comprehend. Seeing it all perfectly, all possibilities. And when God sends someone and God says go, He always equips people to do His work. Always. He knows what He's doing. And I like that God, you typically, I think, know when, when God is calling you to do something like really bully because it is pretty much impossible without him. He's not going to ask you, and he does ask you to do things, but he's going to ask you, us, individually, to ask those things that are most challenging to you, give you a very big vision for something, you go, no way. And just like Gideon, we, we will get to a place where we start looking at ourselves as opposed to looking at God and figure out why this is not going to work. And Gideon seems to kind of start listening to him. He goes from calling him sir to Lord. He's like, yeah, sir, you know, where has God been? Lord, um, do you know who I am? He's still hearing through self-centered ears, though, because it's clear He understands what God is saying. He understands exactly what he's commanding. And he gives very self-centered responses as to why it's not going to work. First of all, I'm a nobody. It's like, what am I going to do? I'm an ordinary man. We don't even know what his past was like. But he's like, I've never done anything. I'm in a wine press. That seems like the bottom of the totem pole for the family, right? Gideon, get back to the wine press, man. I'm a nobody. He says, I'm from the weakest clan. I am weak. There are people that are infinitely stronger. I am not strong enough to do this. I am the least in my family. 
Like, I'm not just from the weakest family. I'm not just, like, like from the place of, like, the last place that you would choose from. I, even if you did choose that place, I'm, like, at the bottom of that place. It doesn't have a lot of confidence. It's not as much as God does. And when Gideon responds with, who am I? Who am I to do this? The Lord says, you are who I say you are. Isn't that cool? I mean, think about that. How often have we told God, like, you know, well, I can't do this. You know, like, I am, you are who I say you are. And I say, Gideon, that you are a mighty man of valor with everything that you need. He tells him he has everything he needs to do his will. He has everything he needs. He doesn't need any more time. He doesn't need any more strength. He doesn't need any more knowledge to be able to obey his commands. Gideon's job is not to understand how God is going to work it all out. Because, yes, from his perspective and from our perspective, it seems impossible, crazy. Last guy I would pick... His job is simply to do what God tells him to do. That's called faith. And we're so afraid of having faith because we want to know how it's all going to work out. Understand each piece. And that God's commands are very clear. Nah, I'm not sure how that's going to work out, so I won't follow. Even if Gideon doesn't feel ready, God, Jesus, has said, you are. You don't need any more time to process. You don't need more time to think about it. I mean, should I really love my neighbor? I don't know. My neighbor's really mean. Be careful. Gideon is, is listening to himself. He's not listening to God. He cannot be see, see beyond what he knows of his past. He can't see what, what he sees as his circumstances. He can't imagine those things that are, are just impossible for him to accomplish. And so he has this world of self-pity and self-doubt and and really self-reliance. So he argues, I cannot be the one to do this. He doesn't argue it doesn't need to be done. He says, I can't be the one to do this. And the Lord agrees, really, by responding with one of the most powerful statements of Scripture. But I'm going to be with you. (laughs) Yeah, no duh. You can't do it. I'm going to be with you. This isn't about you, Gideon. I'm going to be there. It's not about what you don't have. It's not about what you can't do. It's not about what you have to change. It's about listening to God. It's about believing and following Jesus onto what amounts to very risky missions, scary missions, but believing that it is infinitely safer and more satisfying To be with Jesus than to sit fearfully comfortable in a wine press without Him. That's a very different way. Man, that's scary. I'd rather stay here where God's not, where it's comfortable and I'm scared to death, as opposed to going with Jesus, where that's kind of scary, but being with Jesus is probably the safest place you can be. And yet we choose comfort 
More times than not. Let's go into verse 17 and see how the conversation continues. I think one of the things I got from this passage is that, for whatever reasons, God's word doesn't seem to be enough for us. It doesn't seem to be enough for God to just say it. And it's not enough for Gideon. He sounds very much like us, I think. He needs more than a Bible verse. I mean, I know the Bible says that, but how does that work out? Really? That's where we're going to go with this? It's either God's living word, it's either God's actual words, or not. Here's what he says. It's not enough for Gideon. The words are not enough. Verse 17, he said to him, Okay, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. Verse 19, so Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes and an ephah of flour. And the meat he put into a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him underneath the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of the Lord said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock. And pour the broth over them. And he did so. And then the angel of the Lord reached out with the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. And then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The Lord said to him, now speaking, it's a very Trinitarian passage. First you have Jesus sitting with him, you have the God the Father speaking, later you'll see the Spirit empowering him. But the Lord said to him, this voice, peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. And then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. And to this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizrites. So Gideon... His word, really not. And we kind of look at that like, well, that's okay, confirming it. I think so. And then I think not, a little bit. Gideon asks him to perform a sign. And he, I think in many ways, because he's not confits, he, he entices God with a little bit of a present. Basically, he wants him to do um, what amounts to a magic trick, you know, make lightning flash, so he knows that what he says is true. Think about this. I believe what he's actually saying is like, okay, prove yourself to me, God. Prove yourself. That what you say is actually true. I think we approach Scripture the same way. Give me that flash of lightning. Make a star go so I know. I'm sure none of us have ever done that. You're giggling. I know I've done it. I mean, I've got Bible verses But, you know, those can be misunderstood. So I need a little bit of flash, boom, bang. Because this word's just not enough. I mean, if I don't get big miracles, right? If I don't get big emotional rushes, I can't, I won't follow. I got to have that feelings. I got to have the tingles. I need a sign. Tingly, that's a sign. Then I'll know that this is true. I'll follow if I get the flash of lightning, the burning bush, the talking horse, or something else amazing. Prove this will work out for me, God. Dangerous place to be. And I think that that is where 
Gideon's problem is. Prove it to me. It's about me, God. Convince me. Tell me your word is true. It's all of our problem. And the Lord doesn't perform the magic trick he wants. But he does do something quite miraculous. Now, considering his poverty that Gideon has, he brings a very costly gift to him. That cost him a lot. It was a major sacrifice for someone who has no food. But Jesus is not impressed. In fact, Gideon brings what I think amounts to his life to God. And God takes it and he burns it up as a sin offering. Gideon expected some proof and God gave him peace. Gideon wanted really his fortunes restored and Jesus says, no, what you really need is a restored relationship with me. Gideon desired freedom from oppression and God's going to give him freedom from himself, from his sin. Gideon's bringing this present intending to show God, look how selfless I can be. Look how much I can give up and God burns it up to show him how selfish he actually is. He gave him himself in many ways. And with the presence of God and the relationship restored came a fear and a peace with God at the same time. He was freed from himself, I believe freed from his cynicism, freed from his doubt, freed from his fear of men, and his peace that he received, the shalom, this this core, deep, life, comprehensive peace that he received, led him to worship. That's the order I really believe. It goes peace with God, which leads to worship of God, which leads to a bold mission for God has to go in that order. And some people jump to mission, they still haven't gotten themselves right with God. And some people drop worship out and aren't doing it motivated by response to God. They're trying to get a response from Him. Peace, worship, mission. I totally believe that. But the mission of God always begins in a man's heart, and then the next step is that it overflows into his family before he goes and takes on some nation. And that's what you see with Gideon. And that's how I genuinely believe it's, it's genuine call of God. You've got all kinds of guys, Jesus told me to do this. Jesus told me this. Dude, your marriage is screwed up. I know, but I'm going to Ethiopia. No, you're not. That's not the call of God. Starts with a man's own purity or woman's own purity, and then it overflows into the family before they start doing some grandiose adventures. That's the call of God. And this is what happens with Gideon. In verse 25, it says that God keeps talking to him. God talks to him. You know what's really crazy is that God talks to Gideon probably more than any of the other judges. And that's why the end of Gideon's life is so incredibly tragic. We'll get to that in a couple weeks, but he, isn't, he doesn't end well. He doesn't end well. Verse 25 says, That night the Lord said to him, this is after all that offering, he's made his altar, he's at peace with God, he's feeling great. He says, Take your father's bull 
and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. And then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. And so Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So there's always a mission before the mission. And that begins in the family. Gideon is the son of an apostate dad who did teach him about Egypt, keep talking about these things, but is himself um, given over to idolatry. And his father built what you end up seeing as kind of the city altar on his own property. Such a big altar that it takes two bulls to tear down. So it's not just some little stone figurine in the corner. It's big. So as think about this. As Israel, even Gideon, is crying out, God, where are you? God, why aren't you helping me? You're being so mean and silent. He's got a huge idol in his backyard. Think about that. How often are we calling out for God and God's like, you want to take care of that first? You know that huge porn pile you have? Because I think that we really believe we have this sense of entitlement that God owes us something. And that we can play around with all these other things and give them all our time, money, energy, and devotion and go, oh, by the way, God, I need you now. doesn't work that way. So he tears down the altar in his own home and he's commanded to build a new altar. Before he does that, he's scared. He is scared. Not only is he afraid of the men of the town, he's afraid of his own family. And I think that's something that often stops a lot of us from starting to pick on some of the idols in our own family. That's almost harder to attack and harder to bring into the light. I'll never forget Luke 14, 26, where Jesus says, as great crowds are gathering around him, Here's what he says in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, that's pretty much all of them, right? Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, can you imagine, like, Jesus saying that to us today, right? Like, wow, that is narrow. That is harsh, Jesus. People are not going to like you saying that. How could you? That's so offensive. That's going to push people away. Whoever does not bear his own cross, he says, and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, I will say, Jesus doesn't want people to actively hate one another. Hey, Jesus, I hate my dad. Am I doing good? Right? That's not what he's talking about. Here's what he's trying to put forward, I believe. He's contrasting the level of love and devotion you have for the Lord in comparison to any other relationship. And it's supposed to be so strong, so powerful, so compelling, it will look like hatred if you were to compare the two. It's not literally go hate, 
But it's like, no, love God that much that you will follow Him even when your family's saying, freak show, you're crazy, you're wrong, I disagree. Gideon is controlled by the peace of God that can only come from Jesus Christ. And though it's tempting, I think, for some of us to look down on Gideon as someone who, you know, oh, going to do it at night, huh? You're so bold, Christian. We kind of look down on him. I think I look at it and say, you know what? Here's the reality of the call of God. It does not take away every fear you might have. It's scary. There are fears attached to it. It's scary to start tearing down idols in your own home. Stuff that's been very precious. Stuff and routines and practices and behaviors you've done forever. It's scary. But God's peace, I believe, empowers you not to be controlled by those fears. I don't think it takes them away forever and they're just like, I'm just not affected at all. I think it's scary, but you still move and you still act and you still go. In many ways... The peace of God empowers us through those fears. Fears of being disliked, fears of being misunderstood, fears of being hated or hurt or rejected or worse. So into the dark of night, he goes, he tears down the altar, and he decides or follows God's commands to build a new one because that's complete faithfulness. You can't just tear something down without building something to worship. It's not enough just to remove all the idols. You've got to put a foundation of worship to the one true God in your home. So Gideon builds a new altar on top of the old one. He sacrifices the seven-year-old bull, really, to... Um, and, well, he sacrifices the seven-year-old bull. He uses the old god, the Asherah pole, as kindling for the fire, which I just think is God's way of like, <laughs> right? And then he... You see that ultimately... The seven-year bull is probably to cover the sins for the seven years that they've been under the Midianite oppression. So Gideon has led his family now, after experiencing himself, led his family into a new and renewed relationship with God. And then comes his family's response, which is not well received by the town. Verse 28 says this, When the men of the town rose early, in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and Asher beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. And then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Well, will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. There you go, Dad. All right, Dad's coming around. If he is a god, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Zerubbabel. That is to say, his name meant, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. 
So Gideon had acted in very much a, a way like a priest, atoning for the sins of, of really the community. His own people of Christians. The people that are upset aren't the Midianites. They're the Christians. They're his own people. And they're mad about the fact that their precious idols have been destroyed. They're defending their sin at this point. They are so upset that they want to kill Gideon. The man that has helped restore their relationship with God. People get ticked when you start attacking personal idols. And you start bringing in to the light some simple things that are making your self, big self, comfortable and secure and satisfied that are in fact sinful. People do not like that. Reactions of people are enough, or even the, just the fear of a reaction is enough for us to say nothing at all about our love for Jesus. Because that's really what Gideon is doing here. It's enough for all of us to stay in the dark, but faith in the living God is not meant to remain in the dark. Not with our families, not with our neighbors, not with our friends, not with our community. I think, again, one of the passages in Luke that Jesus is these bold statements. He says, I tell you, in Luke 12, whoever publicly, what's that mean? Well, I think it means you're not alone. Okay, so with someone else, large group, small group, I don't know, neighborhood, work, friends. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. People say, well, I've never disowned Jesus. I don't know if that's the right question to ask. Why are you skipping over the publicly acknowledged part? I wonder if you're making an excuse. The truth is, if the one true God is going to be Lord of all in your life, then all gods have to go. And God is very patient But he is not tolerant of other gods, and he is not tolerant, quite frankly, of partial, half-time devotion. And it seems like when prophets, or hackers of wheat, or English teachers turn pastors, start drawing those kind of lines, guess what happens? People get ticked. I get emails, or just mean looks. None of you are giving me mean looks, I'm sure. That's why I keep looking down. Especially so-called Christians. Ooh, why do you say so-called? Because the truth is this, and I'm going to be real raw with you. We can have conversations about it later if you'd like. It's not between services. (laughs) Here's the truth. There is a lot of lukewarm, mediocre, part-time, obey-when-it's-convenient people who think they are Christians. And that it's okay to not listen to anything Jesus says. That was Gideon. You ever read about what Jesus thinks about lukewarm? It's not real favorable. Well, I don't have to really listen to what Jesus says. Maybe some of the moral stuff. Jesus said a lot. 
Well, I would do those things if you would show me a sign. No, you wouldn't. And if you're still waiting for a sign, you're still waiting for the flash of lightning, you're still waiting for that big change to happen, for God to do that miracle, so then I'll follow you. Once you move this big obstacle, let me warn you what Jesus said about signs. He said, if you're, not, if you're waiting for a sign, guess what? You're not my people. Here's what he said in John 10. Speaking to the Jews who are asking him for a sign. I told you and you do not believe me. And the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness to me. Like, I already did a pile of signs. But you do not believe me because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Even if it's hard. Even if I don't understand how it's going to work out. The sheep still come because they trust the shepherd. They love the shepherd. They're compelled by the shepherd. They know they're protected by the shepherd. The sheep that go, man, waiting for a sign. That's probably a goat bleeding, right? It's not a sheep. I'm sure you don't sound like that, but you know, if you did, it'd be pretty great. So let me just like bring it to a close. Here's the reality. I know a lot of us here are like, here's the bottom line. I think a lot of us are not really listening to God. We listen to ourselves a ton. And yourself is cynical and doubtful and fearful and it's paralyzing. And the only thing that's going to change that is not a sign. It's not this big thing changing. It's not your husband or wife becoming a Christian because they're not. It's not you getting that job that you've been waiting for. What's going to Change for you in terms of whether you listen to God or not is he coming face to face with the real problem. And the real problem is you're sitting in your wine press, hiding from the world, going through the daily grind of life, complaining about everything God has not done for you because you can't see it beyond yourself. And because you're not listening to God, who is talking. You can't see beyond what you can't have, what you can't do, or what you can't change. And nothing of that is going to alter or change until you have and are at peace with God. Until you confess that you have placed yourself at the center of the universe. You will suffer, I think, from cynical attitudes, from doubting, and from a fear-filled life that comes with being self-absorbed, self-pitying, self-concerned, self-promoting, self-satisfied, self, 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 self. That's the problem. The circumstances are not the problem. It's who's on that throne. You need peace with God. Right now, you're at odds with Him. I say, generally, I don't say names because I don't know who you are, but I do believe there are many people that are at odds with Him. You're talking over Him. You're like plugging ears, la, 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 you know. Yeah, I know you're talking, and I'm just going to kind of do my own thing because that's too scary to do what you're asking me to do. But like Gideon, God is prepared to give you a new life through the blood of Jesus Christ. An entirely new life, an entirely new perspective that you see things completely differently. And only through receiving the forgiveness of sin, only through Jesus giving you, like he did Gideon, a new name, a new purpose. They're actually like, what am I doing here? 
The irresistible voice of Christ changed Gideon from the tree hacker to the God fighter. The idol fighter, I should say. And it's not as if, you know, he suddenly figured everything out. It was that there was a transformation through Christ. And he was given the power to stop listening to himself. And he began really to listen to God's voice. And as he did, and you'll see as a story unfolds, as he did progressively, what was once considered right in his own eyes, which is the whole theme of Judges, these people doing what's right in their own eyes because they're just not listening to God, suddenly became very wrong and very undesirable. And what was once wrong, what was, was once bad or, or scary or useless or a waste of effort, suddenly became the very thing God wanted him to do. More than that, the very thing he wanted to do. They would compelled him. And that begins with peace with God, which leads to worship, which leads to mission. And so we come up every Sunday and we take communion, but I just, I warn some of you to take, when, as you take it, if you take it. A lot of you are not at peace with God. How do you test that? You're not really interested in what he's saying. And then a lot of us, I think, come through this routine of Sunday and go, hey man, I'm listening to you, everyone else is. Just be careful. If you're truly going to listen to God, that means you actually have to do what He says. And trusting that, quite frankly, as scary as it might be, it's way safer than sitting in a wine press or a cave not listening to Him by yourself. I pray that makes sense. I'm going to pray for us. The band's going to come up. And again, we're going to give to God. We're going to receive the peace that only He provides through communion. And then we're going to Sing back, worshiping Him with our voices, worshiping Him with our tithes and offerings, worshiping Him with how we love one another, praying for one another, encouraging one another, greeting one another, because all that God has done for us.